You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Dale C. Allison, Jr. is the Richard J. Dearborn Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. He earned his M.A. and Ph.D. from Duke University. I am delighted to have him back with us today to comment on his book, Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience in a Secular Age. Welcome, Dale Allison, back to the Grace Saves All podcast. I'm happy to be here this afternoon. Well, one of my greatest convictions in life is that everything is grace, and grace is a major theme in your book. Growing out of a teenage, transcendent moment in which you experienced the presence of God, you reached some staunch, con- some staunch convictions. In your book, Encountering Mystery, you write, The first of these convictions is that the transcendent reality that descended from the Kansas night sky is not a curiosity, something about which I could not choose to be indifferent. Not only is it, as I initially intuited, connected in some mysterious way to everything else, but nothing by comparison counts for much, or at least fails to count in the same superlative way. Second, the theological idea of grace is not uninformed theory. Perhaps, indeed, grace is built into the structure of things. My experiences were in no way consciously sought, planned, or manufactured, nor were they the effects of fasting or ingesting drugs. They were not rewards for this or that, nor were they linked to a personal crisis. They seem instead to have come out of nowhere, like Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. Uninvited, they just happened. So I experienced them as surprises and received them as gifts. So can you just start out by saying some more about the connection between life-changing, transcendent moments and your understanding of grace? (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make the attempt. I'm not a theologian, but um, my language here in, in, in the passage you just read comes from reflection on several events, several events that uh, I felt at the time were profound, and they are events that I'm still thinking about and, yeah, heck, talking <laughs> uh, with you about today and writing about in books. So they're really important to me. But when I stood back... Uh, or when I have stood back and looked at these things, it has been striking that I don't see any preparation for them. That is, I can't see any common thread here. I can't see that I was looking for anything. They really were experienced as interruptions. That is, I was just going about doing this or doing that. And then in a split second, my attention is drawn to something that I didn't know there and actually wasn't there in my consciousness before. And then this series of things happens and then you're back in the normal reality, right? And so I was raised as a Protestant and the word that just naturally comes to mind for this is grace because they don't seem earned. They don't seem uh, prepared for. Now, I should add that I do think that sometimes there are little things that we can do maybe to help. So my experiences um, 
A couple of them had to do with the outdoors, and people do often say that the outdoors was a trigger for a mystical event. And sometimes people will also talk about the importance of silence. And I wasn't in the middle of a conversation with anybody uh, when, when these things happened to me. So I, I sort of think there are things that we might be responsible for, like being uh, introspective and silent and being out in nature. But I don't think we can produce these things. I don't think there's any reliable series of criteria. So again, given my Christian orientation, given my Protestant upbringing, grace is is the best I've ever been able to do for this. Um, I'm sure there are other words, and maybe if I were more knowledgeable, I'd figure out what really caused these things. But at this point in my life, I'm happy just to say that these are divine uh, events of divine grace, and I, I, I just go on down the road with that. Well, I liked your phrase um, that the theological idea of grace is not uninformed theory. So you're not just getting yeah. the idea of grace from doing word studies and studying the Greek word charis and looking how it's used in various ancient contexts, although that plays into <laughs> it. But uh, what happened is that you just had a surprising experience, which came sort of out of nowhere to you. And when I think about, for instance, Paul's life, and how his experience uh, just came to him uh, without him seeming to have done anything to particularly recommend himself uh, for that experience. And just how it, it uh, so I really like the way you've connected grace as a theological idea that's not, that's, that's really trying to express uh, experience, life experience. So, so picking up on Paul, it's not as though Paul doesn't know anything about Jesus of Nazareth. He's actually been uh, persecuting some of Jesus's followers. So he has to know some things about them. He has to know some of the things they say. It's more of a, oh, I'm wrong about this character, right? He's not what I thought. Now, when I had my initial mystical experience as a teenager, when I'm 16 years old, one of the things I thought was, oh, this is what people mean when they talk about God. So I had always believed in God, right? But it was sort of like, oh, there's actually an existential element uh, to this. People aren't just talking. Uh, there can be experiences that relate to this. And it's the same thing with this notion of grace. Of course, uh, I, I can read ancient texts, but it is something else when you have an experience and you, in effect, say, oh, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. Or I think maybe that's what they're talking about. Maybe I just had such a thing. Well, uh, you share in your book a number of mystical moments in your own life and those of others, which suggest the reality of a loving God and of the presence of a deeper spiritual reality, which enfolds this one. Because of my interest in Christian universalism and Julian of Norwich, this example of one person's transcendent moment stood out to me that you related in the book because it references Julian's revelation that all manner of things shall be well. The man's testimony in the book that you reported on went like this. According to this man, an indescribable peace, which I have since tried to describe as a diamond moment of reality, came flowing into or indeed waking up within me and I realized that all around me, everything was lit with a kind of inner shining beauty. The rocks, bracken, bramble, bushes, view, sky, and even blackberries, and also myself. 
And in that moment, sweeping in on that tide of light, there also came knowledge, the knowledge that in the end, all would be well, all manner of things would be well. I was wondering if you could just say something about Julian of Norwich's um, Revelations of Divine Love and how moments of wondrous uh, transcendence have impressed people with the impression that all manner of things will be well. Well, okay, so let me see if I can uh, answer this uh, in two ways. So first of all, with regard to Julian, if you look at the very famous passage where uh, she says, all will be well, it appears that she's actually hearing a couple of sentences. It sounds as though, you know, she got a message in her head, a sentence, and then she has to interpret it. And for me, one of the interesting things is she knows her Roman Catholic tradition doesn't teach, as she's received it and understood it, doesn't teach that all will be well because some people will be in hell forever. And she speaks in this passage of those who are uh, outside of the faith, which, which means outside the Roman Catholic Church for her. And so she has these words and she knows they're true. She believes they're from Jesus, but she also knows this tradition. And she also thinks that this is what the Bible teaches at points. And then she does this lovely thing. She's so convinced by her experience and so overwhelmed by it that she says, in effect, well, I can't figure this out. I don't really know how to harmonize my tradition with what I now believe to be true. But then she says, with God, all things are possible. She says, it's impossible for me, right? And it's impossible for me to figure out. Now, what I take from that in part is the overwhelming nature of her experience. Her experience is so strong and so real and so vibrant that she can set it over the tradition that she lives within and that she has been taught. And she can see the tension and then just say, well, all will be well. I don't know how that's going to you know, work out. I don't know how that fits with what I've been taught in church or even read in some biblical text, but I, I believe it's true. Now, the, the second thing I guess I'd like to say in response to your question is that while Julian is a famous and great mystic, one of the things that you discover if you look in the right places is the sense that there is a transcendent, overwhelming uh, love beneath or behind or uh, secreted within the world. This is really common. I mean, it really is common. So uh, just speaking psychologically, I have no doubt that she genuinely had this experience because it's it's fairly common. Uh, but with me, it's so it's so fascinating to watch her wrestle with this intellectually because it doesn't just sort of fit everything that she's been taught. So she has to, she has to, uh, to work her way into some understanding. And what she actually does is say, I don't understand this, but I know it's true. Well, what really struck me about that. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to say that's true for me too, because if I, believe or am inclined to believe or want to believe on the basis of certain uh, mystical raptures that, let's say, God is love, right? It's not obvious that this is true. All you have to do is read the news. All you have to do is do a little history. I mean, the world is full of horror and injustice, and, you know, everybody knows. The world is a really difficult place. 
And so when you say God is love, it's not as though everybody hears that sentence that says, oh, yeah, that's just obvious. It's actually the opposite. You hear that statement and we all wrestle with it, right? How can this be true given the hard things we see around us? So I think we all, in one sense, if we have this experience, have the same sort of issue that Julian had, which is how does this fit with other things I know, right? But this experience, again, can be so overwhelming that it's the one that rules uh, your primary uh, perception. Well, I really appreciate the, the – one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is you included so many quotes from other people and other sources. It wasn't just kind of your ideas. You really <laughs> loaded it full of lots of really wonderful quotes. And I really like this part of this quote that you shared about the man who said um, – that he had this uh, diamond moment of reality that came flowing into or indeed waking up within me. And that idea of something flowing into him and waking something up in him reminds me of that Ephesians 2.8 where it's it's not where Paul is trying to say this is not this this um, was not from me. It was not out of me. It, it came it came and it rushed up in me. You know, it was, um, uh-huh. and and so that to me that that really captures that experience of grace. It's this thing that that rushes in, or overtakes us, or or surrounds us, or enlightens us in such a way that it's not like we flipped the switch. It's like no, that that flipped the switch. It turned something. It, it awakened something, or, or awakened in us something that was an awareness. Uh-huh. Well. We don't want to get into theology too deep here, and I don't want to offend all the Protestants in the audience, and I'm actually a Protestant, but I'm one who thinks that if you want to talk about the center of Paul's theology, it may not be justification by faith. That may just be something that he has to argue for when he's fighting about the Gentiles. I think maybe Paul ultimately, at his heart, is somebody who thinks he's united with Christ and that Christ lives within him and that he is in Christ. Uh, he's been crucified with Christ. And I, I think, um, while this is hard to conceptualize, that Paul, in some sense, is a mystic. And it fits with what you just said. He isn't just alone, and God isn't out there. Christ somehow lives in him and through him and does things to him, right? And um, I... It just harmonizes with what I think with what you were just saying. Yeah. Well, so I really. I, I, all I'm saying is I think that's a really important part of Paul's uh, theology and self conception. I don't think it's marginal to who who he was. Yeah, it's growing out of uh, his his lived experience, his reflection on his on his lived yes. experience. Uh-huh. Okay, you share uh, the following personal experience in your book, which speaks to the immense divine capacity for healing all the evils of the world. You write. The following event occurred when I was in my mid-40s. I wrote it up um, in an email to a friend a few hours later. I was still in bed Sunday morning when my wife turned on some classical music. Unfortunately, I don't know the piece. It didn't wake me, but rather brought me to that fascinating state between waking and sleeping. I entered some sort of place that was entirely sky blue, composed of softly pulsating diamond crystals with large bird shadows or souls flitting through it. It was like being in the sea. 
The stuff surrounded me, but I wasn't exactly floating. The place itself was joy, unbounded, ecstasy without compare. The music was part of it, and the bird shapes were overflowing with, singing with happiness, as was the place itself, which I can't think of as either organic or inorganic. Maybe it's like First Peter's living stones. Along with the joy was profound peace, the only thing comparable in my experience being one night in the hospital when I floated around in a morphine stupor. I experienced all of this for three or four or five seconds and then was so overwhelmed that I began to cry. My crying then brought me out of that state. Words can't begin to describe what this was like. It will stay with me for the rest of my life. It confirms me in my belief that underneath all this mess is absolute joy. I perked up when the sermon three hours later told me that creation was the overflowing of love from the members of the Trinity. This made perfect sense. It also confirms me in my eschatological solution, an experiential solution, not an intellectual solution to be sure, to the problem of evil. As I lay in bed, I thought that if all the world and its miseries were suddenly dumped into that sky-blue land, the joy would be so overwhelming and complete that all evils and regret and anger and hatred and revenge would dissipate in a second. It is so immense that it would make everything else matter less than a hill of beans. This reminded me of St. Isaac's conviction, conviction that, as a handful of sand thrown into the great sea, so are the sins of all flesh in comparison with the mind of God. I was wondering if you could speak to us um, about your sense that the deepest reality is one of an immense perfecting love and divine joy, which ultimately transcends and tra transforms and heals all. Well, first of all, let me say that that you you quoted a sentence in which I referred to Isaac, and I, when Isaac comes up, I just always want to tell people I love Isaac. I think he's one of Christianity's great treasures. He uh, was just a wonderful person. He was great with the monks that that were under him, and he had a, a, a universal compassion that's just just amazing. So yeah, I Saint Isaac, I think Saint of him, Isaac of Nineveh, Saint Isaac, Saint yeah. Isaac of Nineveh. If people want to look into it more, yeah. Well, he's also called sometimes uh, Saint Isaac the Syrian. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah. Anyway, um, I, I think everybody should know about this character. He's one of uh, he's one of one of the greats. Anyway, let me tell you what I think I'm doing in that passage. Uh, in addition to trying to recount accurately an experience. By the way, I don't know how this came up just a week or two ago, but it did. And uh, I said something about not knowing the music and my wife for the first time ever. This was years ago. She said it was a Bach piece. So uh, maybe she remembers this or maybe she made it up. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Anyway, she seems she remembers this morning, she claims uh, that this happened. So what I'm thinking about here is the problem of evil. And it's always with us. If you ask people in the modern world, why they aren't Christians, and if they take you seriously, almost always the first thing they say is that the world has too much evil in it for there to be a good God, right? That's just almost always Well, and there. it's a profound, it's, it's, not a, it's not a light question, it's a profound one. Yeah. No, it's, uh, we need to take this very seriously. Uh, we also need to be honest, or at least I'm speaking for myself here, I've never read a book or article on this subject and said, oh, yeah, that satisfies me. I don't have to worry about this ever again. That's not happened. So we just need to be honest with that. But what happened to me in reflecting upon this experience 
I realized as I, as I wrote that at least subjectively, even if I can't explain evil, even if I can't account for human history, objectively, I've actually been in a state of mind where I thought everything can be undone or everything is undone somehow in God. All the evil is, uh, is undone in God. And I, I, I've thought, you know what? I've actually had this experience. And even if it was a trick of my mind, I know it can happen. And if I can do it, God can do this, right? So maybe this is the part of our, our future, God giving us this, this possibility. Um, but I also have to say that you have to be, or I have to be really careful here because I can't look somebody in the eye who's just lost a, I don't know, a six-year-old daughter to leukemia. I can't look that person in the eye and say, you know what? Uh, I, I've been to heaven and it's all okay and all will be well and so on. I, I can't do that, right? But I can, when I'm with myself, harbor this hope. I actually think I got a foretaste or a glimpse of some possibility of human existence in which somehow all of hatred, all, all anger, and so on, uh, all revenge uh, is just gone. I, by the way, I know that words can't do justice to this. All I can say is that when I was inside this experience, it was greater than everything else. Greater than everything else. That's it. And it relativized and in some way made tolerable, tolerable or irrelevant um, all the evil in the world. And again, you can't tell people who are suffering, you know, your suffering's been relativized or will be relativized or something like that. But um, I, I don't think that's the pastoral way to go. But uh, I nonetheless believe in my heart of hearts that this is a possibility, this, this state. And uh, I'm actually hoping that's where we all end up in something analogous to, to that. And, well, and if everybody were in that state, everybody would say with Julian and Norwich, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. Well, it's helped me in life to um, internalize or to rehearse to myself my most strongly held beliefs. And one of my most strongly held beliefs is that the that all of the evils in the world are insignificant in comparison with the vastness of God's love and power and mercy and grandeur. And mm -hmm. just rehearsing that to myself each day in some way, um, it's like it, it, it helps me to stay positive in, mm -hmm. um, in other words, I, I sort of go on the offensive. I don't, I, I try to rehearse that belief that I have each day. And then, and then when something evil or horrible appears, uh, that's not when that makes me think that thought. I, I try to think that thought ahead of time. That just a kind of yeah, it's sort uh -huh. of a, it's an orienting it's an orienting thought for me, and it helps define at least the reality that I'm living in, and so it it makes me feel good when other people have these moments of insight and 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 um, and intuition. So 
I think it makes sense in life to base your life on hope rather than despair. And but the hope that I have, I don't think is unfounded. It's not, it's not put out to us in such a way that we can't avoid it. But it, if you if you pay attention to it and you look for it, it's peeking out behind lots of different places. And if you're and if you're fortunate, you can have some of your own experiences in life. And if you're open to reading books like yours, encountering mystery, you can benefit from the experiences of others to, to know that there are reasons that we do have to believe, to believe that there is this great ocean, vast vastness of God's love and power and mercy. So, so I like your word rehearse. I think that's a good word. And I do the same thing, but when I do rehearse that it's inevitable that the experience you read comes to my mind. So that's actually part of rehearsal for me when I think about this now. Yeah, I, I like the idea that that you cannot have that kind of transcendent moment every single day, but you can <laughs> you can take you know that would that would be almost too much. But you can take those moments and you can remember them and you can rehearse them. I like how you wrote them down, shared them immediately. Um, because if you don't rehearse them and actively kind of remember them, they can fade away as if and to the point where you, maybe you start to wonder if it really ever even happened. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So uh, I, I do when weird things happen or important things happen, mm -hmm. uh, write them down. But I would you, you said that you can't have experiences like this every day. Um, one of the things that I've thought a lot is that I've had a handful of really important, profound experiences. And I think if you added them up, they would occupy less than one minute of my life. Mm -hmm. Th these are things that, you know, covered five seconds or 10 seconds or 20 seconds. And it's just utterly amazing, just from a purely psychological point of view, that these things can have such impact, even though they are so fleeting. Mm-hmm. Well, um, near-death experiences are gaining, are gaining more credibility, <laughs> yet people are still reticent about sharing experiences that are outside the bounds of our normal experiences in life. About this, uh, you share in your book, quote, I once spoke with a woman who, upon discerning that I would be sympathetic, shared her near-death experience. It happened while she was giving birth when her spinal block broke. Her report was typical for these sorts of events. She saw herself from above, traveled down a tunnel of light, and decided to return for the sake of her child. What I remember above all is that after narrating her story, she added two remarks. The first was this. Her near-death experience, which she took to be an encounter with God, was the most important event in her life. The second was that she had never spoken with anybody about it before, excepting her husband, and, because of my sincere interest, she told me more about the matter than she had ever told him. I have often recollected her remarks, pondered the social reticence this woman felt. She was a Methodist church secretary and so spent most days around professedly religious folk. She did not, however, share her life-altering meeting with God with them. So I was wondering if you could share a little more about this. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember that very distinctly. I actually met in her uh, church office. So we were in the church building, and she was telling me that, you know, all her friends and pastors and everybody here, she's never um, said this to. And by the way, I can't remember what it was I said to her that brought this forth, 
I can't even remember why we were meeting. Maybe it was something that I had written and that she had read, but she felt safe with me. And as soon as she felt safe, this story came pouring out, which again was the most important thing that ever happened to her. This is actually one of the themes, major themes in my book, which is that lots of people, way too many people, live with a sort of self-imposed censorship. That is, they think that people in their religious circles or people at their place of business or wherever uh, are going to think that they're nuts or crazy or something's wrong with them if they narrate uh, an out-of-the-ordinary event. And um, this makes me deeply upset. I think that this is just uh, a culture in denial. And even if you're not a theist, people have these experiences. People in our culture have them in abundance. And to belittle them or to ignore them is not a way to uh, towards understanding uh, human beings. And um, the fact that other people like me regard many of their secret experiences as really important uh, and yet they can't talk to, to people is terrible. Uh, I sometimes tell people I didn't write this book earlier in my career because uh, while I've been interested in these subjects for decades, uh, it's only now in my 60s, I have tenure, I'm a full professor, I don't care what people uh, think of me anymore, retirements, you know, somewhere in you've my already, vision You've now. already established yourself as a serious scholar. Yeah. So nobody's going to, you know, they might say, well, Allison, you know, uh, is a good scholar, uh, but, you know, he's a little crazy about this. But um, I, I don't care anymore. Right. And I also think in some weird way that I have enough of a standing in the academy that uh, this helps people to pay attention to me. Right. They know I'm not a credulous fellow. Uh, they know I'm a critical, hard-hearted historian, and so it's in, it can be interesting then to to um, to say, oh, this guy is is talking about this. But the truth is, I suppose I've been um, you know a little nervous and hesitant about being fully honest about things because uh, you know I uh, I have a career in the academy. Uh, you know, there's a there's a um, a really interesting website online called Taste, and it stands for I think the um, T A the uh, Archives of Scientists T A S T E the Archive of Scientists Transcendent Experiences. And if you look at this website, what it's about is it's a, it's the mystical experiences of scientists who felt so inhibited about sharing their stories that they couldn't do it anywhere except anonymously online. So there's this website that collects stories from people who are actually afraid that if they shared what happened to them, uh, they might lose a job or their colleagues wouldn't pay attention to them or, or, or something like that. And I personally think that this is horrible. That is, uh, most of the people who have the sorts of experiences I write about in my book are healthy. They're, they're not mentally debilitated. Uh, they're not schizophrenics. Uh, 
they are just normal people who've had things happen to them. And the culture is dishonest when it doesn't recognize this and it needs to, to recognize it. It shouldn't be the case that we have a bunch of scientists who have to hide their identity because they've had mystical experiences. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I actually think that we live in uh, a culture, or, or maybe it would be fair to say there are large areas of our culture that are dishonest because they don't allow people to talk about these things. And again, I don't have to be a Christian to say this. All I have to do is, is say these things happen to people, at least subjectively, they are real and important to belittle them, the people who have them, just because they've had them, uh, doesn't make sense. Um, I, I guess I can add, I think that there are a couple of, of things that have contributed to this, this state. One uh, is, of course, modern materialism, especially 19th century you know, German psychology, which wants to explain everything in terms of you know, matter and reduce, reduce everything. Uh, but there's also a religious component here because when Protestantism gets started, as you know, it has to deny all Roman Catholic miracles. And the Roman church was full of miracle claims. And the easiest thing, the easiest thing for the Protestants wasn't to sort through these miracles and decide which ones might be credible and which ones might not be. That was, that was too scary theologically. So they just crafted ways of dismissing the whole thing. So we get Protestant cessationism, which is the notion that really nothing much extraordinary has happened since the first century or since we got the New Testament or however they put it. So it's not just in the secular culture that you have a tradition of disbelief. It's also the case that in the uh, mainline Protestant churches, we have a tradition of of unbelief and it shows up from time to time let's say when the methodists show up their methodists are too spooky so we belittle all of their experiences or when the pentecostals show up that's too spooky and weird and so we denigrate them and make fun of them and marginalize them so we actually have a, a history here and people grow up knowing there are just some things in some uh, context that they shouldn't shouldn't say and again, part of the book is to say this is wrong and just on a purely psychological uh, ground, we need to be honest about what happens to us. Well, I really enjoyed one of the anecdotes you shared in the book, which points to another problem that people can have is that it's hard to believe something is happening that you don't believe is possible. So you can be in the presence of something that is really happening. But if you're convinced enough that it can't be happening, you will you will say that it didn't happen, even when you saw it uh -huh. happen. And so you share this anecdote. Uh, some years ago during a public lecture, Arthur Ellison, an engineering professor at the University of London, announced that through psychic power, he was going to make a bowl <laughs> of flowers rise into the air. He asked the audience to help him by concentrating and uttering a drawn-out "um." He also invited six members of the audience to come forward and inspect the bowl closely. In the event, the bowl rose an inch or two from its table. The cause was not psychic power, but an electromagnetic device Ellison had hooked up beneath the table. Nonetheless, only one of the six claimed to see a levitating bowl. Five reported seeing, against the truth, nothing at all. They failed to perceive 
what they believe to be impossible, unquote. So could you talk more about why people might not want to see or admit what they believe to be impossible? Well, so I think that we are all uh, wedded to our worldviews, right? We're mm-hmm. all comfortable within our worldviews. And as the psychologists put it, we are all driven by confirmation bias. I really think we are. And it's, it's hard to get away from that. So we want things to fit what we already believe, right? So if you are a cessationist, for example, you're just going to dismiss any sort of miracle or, or unusual event. And if you're a scientific materialist, um, it's, it's going to be the same. Um, one of the stories I tell in the book uh, it comes from a friend. And uh, it doesn't matter what really happened, but she told me right after the supposed event, and she, this is a, a Presbyterian woman, and she told me that she had been uh, at a mass, a Roman Catholic mass, and she claimed that when uh, the priest was offering the host, that he actually rose up off the ground and was levitating, right? Well, she told me this, and she didn't know what to make of it. What's so interesting to me is whatever did or didn't happen, several years later, I brought this up with her. I wanted to hear her story again. And she told me she had no idea what I was talking about. In other words, she she was a total blank. And I was really confused because I had a distinct memory of her telling me this story. Fortunately, I talked to my uh, son about this and he said, oh yeah, I was there the first time. I remember her telling that story. Mm -hmm. So what I concluded was, is that she saw something and she had no file for it. You know, we all have filing cabinets in our heads and we know where to put things. But if you don't know where to put something, it may never go in at all, or it may just disappear after a little while. If you can't interpret it, if you can't fit it into your scheme, if you can't put it into one of your files, it's just not going to be there. And the story you read, that's a great story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I love it. You know, the flowers, they actually rise off and the people look at it and say, no, they did it. And it's because of their, you know, their prejudice and their social pressure, and they just know it couldn't happen. When it happens, they don't see it. So, you know, seeing is not always believing. Sometimes you have to be open-minded in order to see, right? Because prejudice Mm -hmm. can just completely cloud cloud, uh, perception. I was just thinking, I wonder how many uh, mystical experiences and um, that, I don't know, God might put into a life, and upon review, the person might say, well, I don't remember any mystical encounters I had with you, and God would say, well, that's because every time I had one with you, you didn't know what to do with it, and you disregarded it. So, Um, You know, sometimes, sometimes with people I've pushed, and you know, uh, with a religious person or a secular person, and I'll just ask some open-minded question about, you know, have you ever had a mystical experience or did anything happen to you that you couldn't explain, something like that. And sometimes what happens is they'll say, oh, no, 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 no. And then if you don't say anything and you give them a few more seconds, they'll sometimes say, well, 
now that I think about it. And so there is some event back there that they don't pay attention to but it, because it doesn't fit. But it was strange enough they haven't altogether forgotten it. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't believe in, I don't know, God, or I don't believe in the paranormal, or I don't believe in miracles, but, you know, I, I have a memory of such and such. That's, that's a really interesting psychological phenomenon, I think. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and you highlight a book called The Fifth Love, um, written by uh, Mark Fox. And that uh, Mark Fox, in his book, The Fifth Love, explores numinous love and how, for want of a better word, this feels to people. He is nearly alone in this endeavor. You write systematic theologians, for the most part, shy away from writing about out-of-the-ordinary experiences. Moral theologians, moral theologians are all about what people should do, and the classic literature on spirituality recognizes the perils of seeking or privileging peak experiences. Fox, by contrast, attends to what ordinary people report about life-changing encounters with what they take to be a love from beyond. Playing off of Lewis, Fox calls his subject the fifth love. Fox demonstrates that such encounters constitute a specific subtype of religious experience. He also shows that they often occur during a personal crisis and that their long-term effects are impressively positive. Fox further reviews the prospect of reductionistic explanations, in endorphins, abreaction, and temporal lobe irregularities do not, in his judgment, explain the facts as he has uncovered them. Now, so I was wondering if you could say a little more about uh, the experience of this fifth love. Yeah, so first of all, I'd like to plug that book. It's, uh, it's not very well known, but it's really very interesting and uh, at least from my point of view, both fun and edifying. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I did learn while researching for the book is how common this experience of, uh, of running into transcendent love or feeling like you are loved by some invisible power. Um, it's really common. And what Fox does in this book is he does what I think we should do, which is not just analyze one person's experience and try to figure it out, but look at a bunch of experiences that seem to be related, that seem to be more or less about the same thing or a similar thing, and then try to draw generalizations about that mass of experiences. Uh, one of the things that uh, I ended up concluding after thinking about this for a bit is that these experiences are consistent with Christian theism. They're actually consistent with uh, the assertion God is love, right? Mm -hmm. uh, out of first, out of first John, and in fact, and in them, and in Him up, is He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. I like to add that yeah. one in there too. <laughs> so, in uh, when people have these experiences and they know something about. Christianity or the Bible, they often will refer to God is love. You can see, you know, an implicit allusion or, or, or citation uh, to something there. So, uh, you know, that encourages me. But I also uh, have to say that this experience seems to be really widespread so that Sufis can have this experience and also, you know, interpret it within their categories or um, 
Hindus can can do the same. I've also read some Buddhist texts, and Buddhists traditionally come at at things very differently than we do as Christians. And sometimes I wonder: Are they describing this sort of same sort of experience? but they're interpreted in their own religious or, or metaphysical terms. I'm not sure what to think about that, but I am very, uh, I guess I could, could say I was encouraged by discovering how common uh, this is. And also, uh, you know, you can't do anything with thoughts like these, but you have to ask uh, when you have people like Paul or the author of First John or or Jesus, who put love front and center, you have to ask: Did they also have these overwhelming experiences of transcendent love? Right? I would guess in traditional Roman Catholic theology, you'd probably have to say that Jesus had this constantly. Right? Now we don't have access to these people's experience. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I do wonder about this sort of thing. And again, I actually sort of want them to have these experience, this sort of experience because I don't want them to be talking theoretically. I want them to be talking out of what they know, right? And what they know has something to do with what they've experienced. It, it just has to. Well, I like the idea that, that he said that, you know, that, that just brain activity it, that's that, that that somehow it's just our brains that are doing this, um, some type of secretion of some type of chemical or something. <laughs> that it's all just happening, no. but but that what we're, what's happening is that we are experiencing something from from outside, from beyond, or or maybe a better way to put it is that we're realizing that we are in something, and we're mm-hmm. we're maybe experiencing it um, uh, directly. In and it's and in an overwhelming kind of moment that then sort of recedes, um, but it leaves people with the impression that that we are in something. There is something beautiful and wonderful and good um, that is surrounding us and that in, that impinges upon us and presents itself to us in surprising ways that don't leave us with necessarily a, 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 a neat theology, but they leave us with an experience that prompts us to try to understand what that is in the terms that we have available to us. Yeah. So again, going back to my first experience, mystical experience, whatever you want to call it, when I was uh, 16, I think from one point of view, my whole adult life has grown out of that moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to understand exactly what happened, what went on, uh, what does it mean, uh, how has it shaped me and affected me, uh, and so on. Well, there is a flip side to the experience of the fifth love. And about this, you write, <laughs> unfortunately, religious experiences are not all sweetness and light. The fifth love has an evil counterpart. It is the overwhelming horror, the unparalleled terror, not unease or a sense of the uncanny, but true terror that inexplicably arrives from nowhere. And I was wondering if you could say a little more about that. Well, <laughs> well, there's an awful lot to be said there. Uh, one of the things that um, 
readers of this book might come away with is just how common it is to run into uh, a sense that there is an evil, uh, malicious, malevolent presence uh, oppressing you or in your room or in your environment. We actually know enough now to say that at least 20% of people in North America, at least, uh, I'm guessing it's probably close to 40, but uh, we know that at the very least, 20% of people claim, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, you know, whatever their religious background or, or lack thereof, they do say that at least once in, in a lifetime, uh, they have encountered something uh, just hideously awful and evil. And, you know, one of the things that people sometimes do is they they ask, you know, why does anyone believe in demons? Or, you know, why does anyone believe in Satan? And I think the obvious answer is that people ha everywhere at all times and places have had these sorts of experiences where they sense, right, that mm -hmm. there is some invisible, horrible thing here. And the way to conceptualize that is as a, a demon or a fallen angel or, or, or a Satan or something like, like that. Anyway, um, my work in the book uh, relates itself uh, in large measure to the work of uh, a medical researcher named David Hufford, who wrote a book in the 80s called The Terror That Comes in the Night. And he actually focused on, on sleep paralysis, which scientists... Uh, understand to to some extent now, but this drives home the uh, pastoral psychological importance of this. So it's very common. It's very very common for people at night to wake up, and almost always when they do this, they're on their backs, and to feel like they can't breathe, to feel like they're paralyzed, and to feel like there's a really horrible evil presence in the room or a great pressure on, on the chest. And one of the, the sad things is that we now know that this is a very common experience, but most people who have it don't know that it's a common experience. They mm -hmm. don't know anything about it. And uh, it's always a relief when they can find out, oh, this is a certain sort of syndrome. Now, um, from my point of view, one of the things that's interesting is that this experience of paralysis often is attached to this sense that there's an evil presence in the room. Now, whatever medical science ends up uh, thinking at some point, this is a real experience. It's subjectively real. And by the way, I've had this twice, and it is, words can't do it justice. This is utterly petrifying. It's just, words can't do it justice, all right? So this is, this is common. Now, um, one thing that comes out of this for me that's really edifying, and I don't think anybody's ever written on this, but we know a lot about these experiences, and we know a lot about the experiences of transcendent love. There are lots of people, when they have these experiences of transcendent love, who will say, that's what reality is all about, or that's what lies beneath all of this, or I just met God. Mm -hmm. When people have these experiences, running into evil, they never turn evil into the foundational principle. They never think, oh, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Now, I've not written on this, but I think this is really fascinating. What does this tell us about human beings? Or maybe what does it tell us about reality? We intuit that there's something fundamental, fundamentally right, foundational, basic about this love business. And this other thing is experiences aberration and not this is not God. Nobody has this experience and says, yep, that's what it's all about. So uh, how much that tells us about us, how much it tells us about the world out there, I'm not sure, but it's a fascinating fact. Well, one of the topics, fascinating topics you address in your book is the topic of terminal lucidity. You give the following (laughs) anecdote. Um, To illustrate, Scott Haig, the well-known medical columnist and clinical professor of orthopedic surgery at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, had a patient, David, whose lung cancer, as so often happens, had metastasized to his brain. David's speech, as a result, was slurred, then he became incoherent, then he could no longer move. He eventually became wholly unresponsive. According to Haig, he showed no expression, no response to anything we did to him. As far as I could tell, he was just not there. A scan revealed that cancer had eaten most of his brain, and yet an hour before his death, and after he had already begun to breathe irregularly, he awakened. He smiled, spoke clearly to his gathered family, and held their hands. Only then did he slip away. The intending nurse opined that it was like a miracle. This was Haig's verdict. It wasn't David's brain that woke him up to say goodbye that Friday. His brain had already been destroyed. Tumor metastases don't simply occupy space and press on things, leaving a whole brain. The metastases actually replace tissue. Where the gray stuff grows, the brain is just not there. So what do you make of this uh, terminal lucidity (laughs) phenomenon? So so, uh, the reason it's in the book is because I find it fascinating. However... I'm going out on a limb a bit here because there's very little literature on this. I found a handful of articles. I found somebody who had written about it in a German theological work in the 1930s. And I found a chapter, uh, again, in a German book uh, by a recent scholar. Uh, Actually, to my knowledge, the first book on this just came out this month. Uh, Oh. So... Yeah, it's a book called Threshold. I put it right here because I thought this might come up. I have no idea how to pronounce the author's name. Yeah, so Threshold, uh, terminal, lucidity, of- terminal Lucidity and the Border of Life and Death by uh, Alexander um, B-A-T-T-M-Y-A-N-Y. Batmany, yeah. something like that. Yeah, I'm not even going to try the, the last name there, but... Uh, as far as I know, again, this is the first book on this. So that means we're simply at the beginning of trying to understand what's going on here. But, you know, my agenda here is obvious. My agenda is I'm not a, a reductionistic materialist. And so if I have physicians reporting on a phenomenon which doesn't make sense in terms of, let's say, current brain theory, then I will be interested. But uh, there is so little written on this. It's just now being beginning to be studied. We don't even know how common this is. So my first sense was that it's very rare, but I think this book's going to teach me that it's more common than we thought. Well, just in ministry, um, you know, I've had, I've, you know, you hear stories about this, about people who are in comas or who are in some debilitated state, and they've been that way for a long time. 
And then, uh, you know, right at the very end, they, they, they wake up and they speak and they're coherent and then they pass on. So yeah, that's not, so that, that, that doesn't that, sound unusual to me. Okay. Well, so again, I'm just learning because the, the publications on this are very few and far between. And to, again, to my knowledge, this is book number one on this subject. So I don't know whether this will be like near-death experiences. We had a, a famous book published in the 1970s, and then it became a sort of industry, right? We even have mm-hmm. journals for near-death experiences and so on. Is, is this just going to be the book, or is this the first of a number of books, and how seriously will mainstream medicine take this so that we're going to have some statistics and, and, and so on? But it... This intrigues me so much because of the the quotation. We have a doctor there, uh, a well-known medical expert, simply saying this doesn't make any sense. So if we learn enough, maybe it doesn't fit our paradigm. You know, my own belief is that near-death experiences don't fit the materialistic paradigm. I think that they um, contradict it, right? Mm -hmm. It may be too early to say, but it may be that this experience, once it's documented fully, will also be another um, piece of data which says, you know, we don't really understand everything and we haven't figured it all out. And maybe there is a room, there's room here for for afterlife. And maybe we're not just reducible to our brains, our physical yeah. brains. Well, when I see people that have, you know, suffering from Alzheimer's or, you know, various brain injuries and there's a sense, there's a sense of sadness that they are not there anymore because their brain has deteriorated. So it, that uh-huh. makes me feel good to think, well, because the deterioration of the brain, that makes it just more difficult for their soul essentially to express itself to us. Um, but it's almost, um, it's, it's just sort of a neat thing that at the end, when people has gone, have gone through this, that there is sort of this moment of, of witness that the soul basically says, I'm still here. Let me say, I'm getting ready to leave this body, but let me just say hello to everybody before I leave. And uh, before Uh I go on, you know, in my journey. And so that who we are foundationally, like our memories may start to fade, our brain may start to deteriorate, but that does not, that process doesn't erase then who we are at our essence in, in what I think of as our soul. And so I find stories like that very uh, encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Well, um, another um, uh, phenomenon you cover in your book is visionary experiences which happen just prior to death. And about this, you note that uh, these are some really amazing statistics. In 2005, a study of over 500 hospice patients and their caregivers in the U.S. reported the following. of patients had survival-related visions. 90% of these reported seeing parents and siblings. 90% saw angels. 30% reported seeing God or Jesus. 5% saw evil beings. The onset of visions was unrelated to medication and fevers. Incident had nothing to do with age, gender, education, or religious affiliation. Visions typically lasted from one second to five minutes. Beginning three days before death, purported spiritual presences were often continuous. The interval between onset and death averaged four weeks. So what do you make of these end-of-life experiences and deathbed phenomena? 
So the, these are these are kind of like the the phenomenon of terminal lucidity. Uh, they uh, make one wonder about uh, life after death. They make one wonder about this world uh, and, and what's real and what's not real. So what you could do is you could look at these experiences, which really are common, and you could say, well, people are just hallucinating. And of course, we have good evidence that people hallucinate in the subjective sense. You know, you can look up in a at the, at the hospital TV, and you can see locusts pouring out of the TV, and we say, well, you know, you, you're having a hallucination. But uh, there have been some recent studies that are truly fascinating, where the people are very near death, and they are reporting having these visions, and the hospice nurses are able to interview them and say to them, are you hallucinating, or is this real? And almost everybody says, this is real. I'm not hallucinating. So you're talking about people who are operating with the concept of hallucination and saying, that's not what this is, right? Hmm. Of course, they could be wrong. But isn't it really interesting that so many of them are lucid enough to say, no, that's not what's happening to me. You know, my brother is really there or my husband is really there or my wife is really there. Um, we're still learning a lot about these experiences. One of the things I, I, that just dumbfounded me was I found in a couple of articles, one was published in a Brazilian uh, medical journal. I can't, the other one was somewhere in Asia. But in recounting the statistics on people reporting visions and so on, both of these accounts just said in passing, oh, sometimes the caregivers also see them. And in both articles, I thought, this is the most astounding thing here. And they're just mentioned in passing. Like, how can yeah. this be the case? If the people are hallucinating, how can the nurse be seeing, you know, the person at the same time? And there are a, a number of accounts. They're really interesting. I give a couple in the book. There are accounts of people at deathbeds and more than one person is seeing, you know, the dead spouse or the brother or, or whatever. And uh, maybe we have enough of those now for people to say, well, maybe this isn't just purely subjective. So um, this is another area that people are studying and we're going to be learning more and more about it. But uh, at first take, it's really fascinating it's, yeah, it's, I think in some of in some of these stories, the people report seeing people that they thought were alive, but they're confused because they're seeing somebody in the in that sort of the gathered people that they're able to communicate with that are beyond in the realm of the dead, but they didn't know they were dead, and so they're surprised about it. They're just, you know, they're just curious. A lot of curious details to some of these. Uh, deathbed visions that I think sort of lend to their veracity. Yeah. So we, people have been studying visions fairly seriously for over a hundred years now. And that is an experience that goes back quite a ways. That is somebody will be seeing, you know, two or three relatives, but then there's so-and-so who's supposed to be alive. And it turns out they didn't tell, you know, the person right. who's dying that so-and-so just died because they didn't want to, Right. Make, make uh, him or her upset. But, you know, there it is. So, yeah, that actually 
there are enough of those in the literature uh, that that it has a name. That's called a Pekindarian experience. We don't have to bother with how it got its name. But the point is, there are enough of those that somebody named the phenomenon. Well, you you uh, tackle in the in the book the well known phenomenon of near death experiences. Writing in recent times, so called near death experiences (NDEs) have taken center stage. Some contend that these experiences back the belief that we do not fade into oblivion. Many, of course, adamantly dispute this. So, what is your verdict on near death experiences? So. Uh, <laughs> To be honest, I decided a number of years ago that there is enough evidence for us to think that something truly uh, extraordinary is happening. I came to that conclusion after reading enough, uh, uh, reading uh, a large number of books and articles in which a medical person or an emergency scene person would say, you know what, so-and-so was, let's say, uh, on the street and unconscious, uh, but when the person woke up, described everything that was going on while, you know, the person was unconscious. Same thing Mm -hmm. with doctors and nurses in surgery. They'll talk to somebody who wakes up after surgery, and that person knows what went on in the the, uh, operating room. Now, you can take any one story and you can always doubt everything. You can come up with reasons to think the nurse was deceived or the doctor's lying or whatever it was. But I think we have enough stories now that are the same that the burden is now on the person who thinks there's nothing going on here. There are just too many accounts of doctors saying, I can't explain this. It shouldn't have happened. But this patient knew things that he or she could not have known. So I think we have enough of that to indicate that at least extraordinary perception can go on when people are unconscious. And that, of course, raises all sorts of unbelievable questions like, how do you perceive without eyes? How do you see when you, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, So again, I think something extraordinary is going on here. I take the near-death experience seriously, and uh, I think, I I wish theologians would pay more attention to the literature because I think we may actually be learning things about the death process and maybe even the beginning of what happens typically to people, you know, Mm -hmm. once once they're gone. Well, when you put together the deathbed visions— and the near-death experiences, I mean, the conviction and having attended people's death and dying uh, in ministry over the years, you get a conviction that, um, that, that we don't go through the dying process alone. And mm-hmm. I, I like the analogy of the person that's, that as they are approaching death, it's like they are, we're on the shore and they're in a boat and they're they are they are drifting out, and they're getting smaller and smaller, and we can still see them. But then they get to a point where they can see another shore that we can't see, uh-huh. and they begin to be able to see the people on that shore too, and they can still see, they can still see us. Mm-hmm. So they're never in a position where they aren't where they are alone. There's there's always the 
I think that, you know, sometimes people are afraid of, you know, I will die and then I will descend into a void or a darkness yeah. or something. And getting to be around death and dying and hearing all these stories has convinced me that when it comes my time to approach death and when that veil becomes thin, that um, there will be people who I have loved who have gone on before me who will attend to me. And hopefully, if I'm lucky, there will be people who love me now and will be around me. And uh -huh. so that, you know, so that um, uh, that it's not this experience that when we die, we're just, you know, we're, we're by that, that before the, the body is uh, the time that the body has to let go. The those who have gone before us can begin to make communication with us. And I've even heard hospice nurses say that, you know, when I hear a patient start to say, well, I, I talked to mom today, uh -huh. that they'll say, oh, well, they may even tell the attending physician that this patient is getting ready to, you know, to pass. Oh, and yeah. sometimes the attending physician won't believe it. And they'll say, well, I mean, this is just the pattern that I know about that this happens fairly often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I like the Old Testament phrase that you run across several times. So-and-so died and was gathered to his fathers or gathered to his people. Uh, I, I like that phrase. And I also remember sometimes um, the, uh, the story in Luke 16. So the rich man and Lazarus, uh, or the, yeah, the rich man and dives. You're, you remember that um, when the poor person dies, it says that the angels came for him. And one of the things that you find around deathbeds is usually, you know, you see relatives or people you recognize, but also you get these reports of, you know, just beings of light or an anthropo, you know, anthropomorphic figure of, of light, and you don't know who this is. Again, I think these things uh, even in the Bible, have experiential roots. Uh, the notion that you are not alone in death, you can find this in Greek sources, Egyptian sources, old sources from all over all over the place. Uh, I think in part it, it represents people's experience. There's no reason to think that if modern people on their deathbeds have visions, right, that people didn't used to have the same thing. That doesn't mm -hmm. make sense at all. This appears to be a, a human uh, thing. Your chapter, Theological Implications, begins with this personal experience. You write, one afternoon many years ago, I awakened from a nap on my couch. I stood up and idly looked through the living room window. Across the street was an aged, unremarkable apartment complex. Before then, I had paid it scant attention. That changed in a moment, out of nowhere, unbidden, came the engulfing sense that I was the building and the building was me. I somehow ap apprehended that the red bricks and I were the same subject, were one. All distinction was an illusion. This hypnotic conviction, which lasted maybe five seconds, was like a revelation. And while I was inside the experience, it commanded assent. After it departed, leaving me on my own, I remember having this thought. Were I a Hindu, I would know exactly what to think. Tat tvam asi. Thou art that. Atman is Brahman. All is one. I was not, however, a Hindu. I was instead a Christian. So my response was, well, that was interesting. So tell us about your sense of the theological implications of this, uh, these kinds of mysterious, mysterious experiences that sort of uh, 
lead us to the conviction that that all is one. Or I, I might use the word a non-dual, non-dualistic yeah. kind of awareness. So I, I guess there are two things to say here. So one in that passage, I am not really trying to promote the notion that that all is one, but that experience of all is one or we're all connected is that might be the most common religious experience of all. That really is everywhere, right? You have to be careful with it because some Christian mystics uh, who have had this experience then get in trouble because they expound it in non-orthodox ways. But uh, I don't have any trouble thinking that on some strange, mystical, psychic level that we're all connected and uh, maybe the entire creation in some sense is, is one. Maybe we're all equidistant from God in some really interesting mystical fashion. So I, I, I take this seriously. But what I was trying to do there is simply argue or observe that I think that, that when we do theology, we shouldn't just do theology. Because I think that often... Uh, when we think about a particular idea or doctrine, we should be asking about the experiences that helped inform it, maybe didn't create it completely. But if I look at Hinduism and I ask, where do you get the notion that all is one? It's just obvious to me that it's the interpretation of an experience that lots of people have had. That is, the doctrine is a way of making sense of experience. And this has already come up in other ways within our Christian tradition. If you were to ask me, well, why do people believe that when we die, we go to be with the saints or we go to be with the relatives? We have lots of songs, you know, uh, Protestant and Catholic songs about a reunion with the, the saints and the relatives and so on. I think it's just because people have this experience. Why do we have the notion that angels come for people at death? I think it's because often people see these anthropomorphic beings of light uh, shortly before they die. If you ask, where did we get the doctrine of hell? I don't think somebody just sat around and said, that'd be a good one, and just invented it from scratch. I know that people do, sadly and unfortunately, have hellish type uh, near-death experiences. So there's a disagreement as to what percentage of near-death experiences are wonderful versus those that are terrible, but we do have horrible experiences. Or again, where do demons come from? It's no mystery to me. People not only run into evil presences or what they feel to be evil presences, they also have visions of, of terrible demonic beings. So I think that a lot of doctrine has its roots in experience and that people are trying to make sense of things that happen to them. And by the way, I want that to be the case. I don't want people just to sit around the fire and say, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we you know, believe this and made everyone think it? That doesn't make sense. What they're doing when they sit around the fire is they're saying, oh, this happened to Fred and this happened to Jane. What does it mean? You know, uh, so I, I think that gives me uh, a, a, an insight in, into uh, our tradition. Also, I'm really big on the fact that if you read the Bible or scripture, it's full of weird and mystical and miraculous events. 
to, you know, to read it as though it isn't is not to see what's there, right? So uh, this, this stuff is, the stuff I write about in the book is, is everywhere, and it's not just offbeat. I think uh, Christian theology at almost every turn incorporates or takes up uh, religious experiences. Well, this is a good segue into the, the something you write about in the book called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. <laughs> quadrilateral is one way to think about how we form our belief system. About this, you note, the Methodist quadrilateral, so named by Albert Outler, holds that in addition to Scripture, the chief sources for understanding and living the Christian uh, faith are tradition, reason, and experience. I regard this not as a theological imperative, as did Outler, but rather a statement of the inevitable. The quadrilateral is descriptive, not prescriptive, because the four elements, including experience, are inextricable. And I was just thinking about this, and maybe that I, for me, you know, the idea of my moral intuition has been very uh, uh, profound for me in reasoning through things. And that might just be a part of experience, but I have this deep sense of what goodness is. And the idea that, uh, that God's goodness and what I understand goodness to be at this very deep and unrevocable level means to me then that God would never make a creation if he knew from the beginning that it would ultimately cause some irreparable harm, that, he, that, that the creation would, would be a curse to some, and that God being all good wouldn't involve people in something that 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 finally wasn't good for them. So when I'm, when I'm working through things, um, you know, I find that my, maybe this is part of experience, but my moral intuition keeps intruding, uh, uh-huh. maybe not intruding, but insisting that, well, uh, this must be, uh, it cannot uh-huh. be another way. Well, so that raises all sorts of difficult philosophical issues. And I suppose one of them is, what do you mean by intuition, right? Do you mean some sort of innate idea or innate impulse? And I don't know that I know enough to be able to talk about that intelligently. I was a philosophy major uh, as an undergraduate and uh, I read John Locke, and you know, way back in the day as a teenager, he convinced me that we don't have innate ideas. Maybe we do have innate ideas, but um, I do think there is something to what you say, although I suppose you could ask the question, your moral intuition, hasn't it been informed by scripture, by tradition, by reason, by experience? To what degree is it an independent thing? I don't know. But maybe once it's created, it becomes its own sort of uh, thing, its own criterion. Um, What I think of in this connection, I don't don't know exactly uh, the makeup of your audience, but I've always been fascinated by both Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, because there are points, you, you, we all know that there are points in the book of Joshua, for example, that make us cringe, right? We mm-hmm. just, you know, hamstringing the horses and killing the women and children and that sort of, sort of thing. There are points at which both Origen and Gregory of Nyssa read the text and they simply say, our God doesn't do that sort of thing. And then they allegorize it. So they don't want to take it as an historical event that God 
uh, ordered, they want to say, okay, that's not possible given what we know about God. So they're using what you might call moral intuition, Mm -hmm. moral sense to say, scripture can't be saying this at this point because that's not who God is. So maybe that's analogous to what you're thinking of here. And I've always admired them for their ability to do this. It's really, really interesting. Well, I, I think the last interview I did with you one time, we were talking about the, the doctrine of hell. And you just said, you know, in a, in a sense, I'm a modern person. I don't believe in torture. You know, it's just not right. Mm-hmm. I, you can't get me to believe something that I just don't believe. You know, I mean, uh-huh. there's, you know, and there is something to that. I think, you know, you're talking about, well, maybe my intuition about what is right has been affected by the modern age, which has rejected torture. And and it could be that if I had lived during a time of monarchs and torture and that was normal and everybody did it and uh, nobody thought anything about it, you know, maybe my moral intuition wouldn't be geared in the same way. Uh-huh. But I think now, you know, now um, this, uh, this uh, well, I don't know, this moral intuition, this mo- I don't know how it has been exactly shaped, but I know that... Um, that somehow the goodness of God has impressed itself on me. Maybe this is part of the, maybe a mystical experience I had earlier in life where I, it, it had like waves of goodness wash over me. And somehow whatever the essence of that is or was, is not the kind of being or that would, uh, that would uh, harm somebody eternally. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe this being might have to expose uh the child to a really scary moment or a revelatory moment that was, um, that was painful or maybe some type of punishment. I don't know, like good parents, but this, 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 that the goodness has to always be there. It has to always be present. It has to always be operative. It never gets, it never gets turned off. That's kind of part of the grace thing that that's always, Mm -hmm. that's always operative. So uh, I'm with you 100%, and so is Origen, and so is Gregory of Nyssa, and so is Isaac of Nineveh. So you're in good company there. Well, that makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're, I was, I'm really impressed that, that you're able to do the serious New Testament work, New Testament scholarly work. And then, you know, some of the books that you consulted and you read um, for this uh, don't come out of the scholarly realm. These are just sort of average people collecting anecdotes oh, yeah. about angels and all kinds of things, things that I would not expect a scholar of your accomplishment to be, you know, quote, wasting your time with. But you seem uh, it, sort of to have an equal curiosity about these these numinous experiences that, that are sort of outside of the realm of what I think of as the New Testament scholars' uh, interest. And I just appreciate how you have been uh, willing to not only just have these as personal ideas, but to do the hard work of writing, actually writing about all of this and letting other people know where they can find out more about it and inviting people to not just have an sort of an intellectualized uh, Christian experience, but to have a, but to be open to how mystical experiences are, are, are maybe at work. And it's okay to go ahead and admit that that that's, that's part of what we're all experiencing together. Yeah, well, so first of all, thank you uh, for, for that. Um, but, you know, just to be kind of um, <laughs> honest about it, this stuff is just fascinating. 
it's it's fascinating in part because I am a religious person and I I find listening to people no matter who they are to be in everybody's interesting almost everybody's interesting and almost everybody has stories and just because they're not academics doesn't mean that their experiences don't matter right actually mm-hmm. the people that I I think in my life that I've treasured most, none of them were academics, right? But they were wonderful, good people. And that counts for me uh, more more than anything. But uh, I'm, I'm interested in being honest. So curious, but just honest. If things are going on and people are telling stories and it's more than folklore, I'm interested, right? And mm-hmm. especially when they're religious stories, and uh, I'm actually sort of frustrated that everybody doesn't share my interest. Isn't it obvious that the stuff in this book is really interesting and really important? And why wouldn't everybody uh, care about this stuff? Well, I like I like it that you're um, you're open to receiving, I guess, inspiration or um, in, intuition or um, input from a, a variety of different um you're kind of an eclectic maybe more of like an eclectic kind of thinker you're not just in your one little groove yeah actually one of the things i'm happy with or maybe proud is the right word about that book is that there's a chapter on these modern angel books and nobody takes those seriously yeah but i think there are some reasons to think about them right they they interest me and so i've read a bunch of them uh, it's fun, but it also causes me to think about certain things. So, yeah. Well, there are a lot. One of the things that I just uh, – in, in reading your book, I kind of uh, – I can't, came away from it having a sense that, you know, there's a lot going on in this world that's mysterious <laughs> and interesting and hopeful. And, and it's really – it was really nice to have a Christian scholar – sort of walking me through all of these things and sort of reflecting on it together and not, not maybe trying to tie it all up into a, you know, a neat, a neat package, but just pointing this out and saying, you know, these kinds of things are happening in our world. And uh, so again, again, I just appreciate your, your book on encountering mystery. And I want to encourage everybody to, uh, to, to just enjoy like I did reading through it. Well, thank you very much. All right. Well, Dale, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to the next time we might visit. Okay. It's been fun. Take care. Thank Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.